KBCS Music and Ideas. In February, I interviewed radio host Tom Hartman, who has a background in psychotherapy, about his book, Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being. Tell me about the premise of this book, Walking Your Blues Away. Sure. Well, I started out um, with a question in my mind, and that's what led me on this journey. And, and um, you know, we have all these elaborate schools of psychotherapy and psychology, and, and uh, they're all relatively modern things. And what I was wondering is, 200,000 years ago, how did people deal with trauma? If uh, Og and Zog are out hunting the woolly mammoth and the woolly mammoth turns around and puts a tusk through Zog and Og watches him die, how does he process that? How did people process this stuff? I've been with indigenous people all around the world. I've been with uh, Native Americans, with uh, indigenous Australians, with aboriginal Africans, and, and participated in many of these ceremonies that are almost always, you know, almost a variation on dance. You know, and um, I was part of one uh, Apache ceremony many years ago, and I thought that they danced like, you know, dancing on the dance floor. But instead, they stand in one place and like just kind of bounce twice on the left foot, bounce twice on the right foot, bounce twice on the left foot, bounce twice. And it's just this complete bilateral thing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so I was thinking, I wonder if that has a therapeutic content of its own. Or for that matter, you know, after Og watches Zog get killed, he's going to have to walk five miles back to the back to the tribe, back to the community. And could that in and of itself be therapeutic? So I started looking into it. And I, at the time, I was um, studying PTSD. And the thing about PTSD is that there is this short-term scratch pad that our brain has. It's called the hippocampus. And throughout the day, everything that happens throughout that day, we record in the hippocampus. And then when we sleep, the hippocampus kind of dumps that into the – this is highly simplified, but the, the hippocampus kind of dumps that into the cognitive brain, the thinking brain, which sorts it and filters it and decides what's important to keep and what can be discarded. And that process seems to be dreaming and make sense out of it in a way that is apparently encoded by emotion rather than logic. And then the next day, we start the next day, and we know that it's a brand new day. And we remember yesterday as a memory rather than as being now. Whereas with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, their experience of the stressful event, the event that caused their PTSD, is that every day when they wake up, every morning when they wake up, that event is still now. And the reason why is because it's still stuck in the hippocampus. It can't get out of the hippocampus. It's like the hippocampus tries to dump it into the brain during dreaming, and the brain says, whoa, that's too big. I don't want that right now. Let's wait another day, and we'll process that. And so you have people who have you know, trauma from war or from abuse or from violence or, or whatever, and different things will cause trauma to different people. Some things that would be very traumatic to one person might not be at all traumatic to another. It's highly individualized. But the question is, how do you get these things that are lodged in the hippocampus out? And it seems that there's a an, the, the technique, the strategy for doing this is something called bilaterality. It's, it's moving the brain. It's, it's actually causing the brain to access the right hemisphere, then the left hemisphere, then the right hemisphere, then the left hemisphere – while the data in the hippocampus is being processed. And then it, it has access to the full brain and it can release it. And 
That happens when you walk. That happens when you dance the way Aboriginal people dance. And, um, and this was discovered in the 1700s, in the uh, 1750s, uh, as I recall, in a big way, by a guy named Franz Anton Mesmer. What Mesmer discovered was that people who were badly uh, emotionally wounded, he had this technique. He, he thought it, he was channeling energy from the moon. So he would put his left hand up and point it toward the moon, wherever the moon happened to be. And then with his right hand, he'd put his uh, hand or a couple of fingers, two fingers, in front of the person's face and, ha and have them watch his fingers as he waved them back and forth, left to right, in front of their face, while he had them describe to him the experience that had traumatized them. And he even believed and claimed that this could cure physical problems as well as psychological problems. And he was getting spectacular results with this, to the point where he became a sensation all over Europe. He started this whole school. It was called Mesmerism. You know, he, he came to the United States. Ben Franklin studied under him. Ben Franklin took him to the French Society of Science and had him do a demonstration. And they all learned Mesmerism and were doing it on each other and stuff like this. And it was a big deal. So then in, in the early 1800s, I think it was around 1814 or 1824, it's been 20 years since I did the research. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact dates. But in the early 1800s, there was a Scottish psychiatrist who had learned mesmerism because it was the hot thing and all the doctors were using it. And his name was James Braid. And he thought the whole idea of the moon energy was hokum. You know, this is, this is silly stuff. This isn't the moon. And his guess was that it was fatigue of the eyeballs was somehow causing the brain to shut down enough that it could release trauma. And so uh, rather than moving his fingers in front of people's eyes, he took a pocket watch and, you know, from a little chain and, and waved it back and forth in front of people's eyes. And sure enough, people would, they'd go into these light trances. They would, they would go into these highly suggestive states. They, they would work through their trauma. And it was extraordinarily therapeutic. And he renamed it first as neuromagnetism, then it was neurohypnosis. And then finally, uh, when he started writing about it, he simply called it hypnosis. James Braid was the inventor of hypnosis. But he would be basically taking it from Mesmer. And he medicalized it in a big way. And by that time, Mesmer was kind of out of the picture. And it became more and more popular. This was the early 1800s. And by the 1890s, uh, probably the most famous practitioner of this was Sigmund Freud. And Freud, in his book on hysteria that he co-wrote with Joseph Brower, uh, talks about how he uses hypnosis to diagnose illness and mental illness, and he uses hypnosis to treat it. And it was that there was absolutely no other technique that he had found that, that, that worked so well. And it's at the core of his book on hysteria, which is his most famous book. It was his first big book. It was published in 1894, as I recall, and or maybe even the late 1880s. And um, so I'm tracking Freud. I'd studied Freud when I was a teenager, um, and he's a fascinating life story. And, I'm, uh, and, and I was tracking his use of hypnosis, and all of a sudden in 1887, as I recall, he just stopped. He stopped using hypnosis, just er, full stop, screeching halt, never mentioned why, and just literally stopped talking about it. It was the end of hypnosis for Freud and Brower as well, his partner, and everybody else pretty much. I mean, hypnosis just like vanished from the scene. The, the medical scene, the therapeutic scene. And this was like way up there in terms of, you know, uh, therapy. 
uh, for everything from psychological to psychosomatic and even some somatic illnesses, you know, uh, blood pressure problems and, and this large kind of collective category that today we'd probably call idiopathic, but were known as hysterical diseases. And so I was wondering why, what happened in that year that caused Sigmund Freud to stop using hypnosis? I had a library of probably two dozen books by or about Freud, and I was digging through all this stuff, and I couldn't find anything anywhere. And so I started looking at the timeline of 1896, 1897, just you know, pulling up history sites. And one of the things that I found was that there was this book published that was the second best-selling book of the entire 19th century, the first being Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and the second was this book. It was uh, authored by a French uh, fiction writer. His name was Georges de Meurier, and the book was called Trilby. And I don't recall what it was that caused me to think maybe that was the thing that tied it in. Well, the word hypnosis was involved in the book, and so I, you know, I saw that someplace in, in, in my research, and so I thought, okay, i got to get the book and read it. So I, and Trilby is still in print, So I mean, because it was such a big book back then. So I got a copy of Trilby and read it. And it's the story of this, uh, there were these four guys who were artists and they had an apartment in Paris. They would hire these young girls as models, these 15, 16 year old girls to come in and be basically nude models for their, for their art. And one of these four guys was characterized in the book in a very anti-Semitic fashion as, you know, the, the Quote, in fact, the phrase that uh, de Maria used in the book was, you know, classic Jewish appearance, you know, with the, the hook nose and all that kind of stuff, you know, the stuff that is of the tracts from Hitler kind of stuff. And he knew hypnosis, this, this one guy, this Jewish guy. And so there was this young 16-year-old girl that had been a model of theirs, and he took her out to dinner one night, and afterwards he said, you know, let me teach you some hypnosis. Let me show you hypnosis. And he hypnotized her and seduced her, or raped her would be the proper word. It was characterized in the book as seduction, but she was unconscious. And uh, afterwards she had no memory of it. And then the next day he hypnotized her again, and uh, she liked to sing. And so he had her sing while she was hypnotized, and she just sang beautifully. And so he started booking tours around Europe where he would take her to these cities, he would hypnotize her, she'd go on stage, she would sing, people would just swoon because she was so good. And then afterwards, he'd take her back to the hotel and he'd have sex with her, and then, and then she'd wake up in the morning going, what happened? I'm exhausted, I don't know what happened. And he'd say, oh, we had a good night, and everything is good. And de Maurier describes the technique that he used. He put two fingers in front of her eyes and moved them back and forth. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was the exact technique that Freud described that he used. So uh, at the end of the book, Trilby, this, this young girl, discovers how this guy, he's, he's getting rich now, right? Every time she performs, he's making thousands of dollars. And uh, at, at the end of the book, she discovers that he has been exploiting her both sexually and for her voice. And she tries to break the spell with him, you know, tries to defy his hypnosis. And on this, this tragic climax of the book, she defies his hypnosis and he can't break through and they both die. I mean, it just kills, it literally kills them both, this psychic effort to do this. And, and she's dead and he's dead. And his name was Svengali. And this is where that name comes from, Svengali. We all know about Svengalis, right? So... This became the best-selling book in the world 
It was published in French. It was translated into 34 languages in the first year. It was the best-selling book in North America. It was the best-selling book all across Europe. And it was being read by wealthy women and who were Freud's patients. 99.9% .9 of them were wealthy women. And so they read Trilby's book about this god-awful Jewish guy who waves his fingers in front of their eyes. And then they walk into Sigmund Freud's office and say, well, help me, Dr. Freud. And he says, fine, sit down. I'm going to wave my fingers in front of your eyes. And they would run screaming out of the room. So I, I, nobody, to the best of my knowledge, had ever put these two things together. Because the question had always been, I mean, when Freud dropped hypnosis, what he replaced it with was cocaine. And he did that for seven years. His best friend died of cocaine psychosis. Freud himself was addicted. Half a dozen of his patients died of, of uh, things associated with cocaine. So why is he desperately going to cocaine when, you know, he had something that worked so well that he wrote an international best-selling book about it? Well, I think it was Trilby. I really do. And uh, so now we have an explanation for why hypnosis suddenly became um, so – uh, dismissed, you know, so so disregarded. And there was also right around that time, uh, around the time that Trilby came out, there there were a lot of people who were doing stage performances of hypnosis and several of And right after Trilby was published, there were three famous stage hypnotists who were prosecuted. One of them was executed, I believe, for hypnotizing people in the audience and, and uh, causing them to go steal things for them later or to meet them in their room in, in the evening and have sex with them, you know, just basically explain. And, and typically the victims were women. And this was scandalous stuff, but it was literally front page stuff in newspapers all over Europe and in North America. And so that was the death of hypnosis by, by 1898. It was just gone. And Freud did his cocaine for seven years. And then when he realized how toxic that was, he came up with the theory, the Oedipal complex and the electric complex, that it all has to do with, you know, boys' relationships to their mother and girls' relationships to their father and all this stuff. And that didn't really work. And he just never got his therapy groove back, you know, right up to the day he committed suicide. It just, none of it ever worked. In Trilby, it's laid out as this guy that's taking advantage of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it possible to really do that? Generally, no. Um, the the uh, instances throughout history of people using hypnosis to uh, get other people to steal things for them, or to, uh, to to sexually exploit people, or you know harm people in other ways, are pretty minimal and generally not you know generally pretty sketchy. You, you can't really say that that was the case. Deep down inside, we all know what's right, and we all know what's safe for us. So um, this got kind of rediscovered in the 1970s. And there were these two guys at the University of California. Uh, one was a professor of cybernetics. His name was uh, Richard Bandler. And the other was a professor of linguistics. His name was John Grinder. And they were m trying to map how language interacts with thought and emotion? How do we organize our brains? How, do, how is our brain organized? Um, for example, if you're, if you're talking to somebody and you say, uh, what did you do yesterday afternoon? They will probably look up and to the right, and they might look off to the left. And then they'll say, oh, I, I was at the park and, and I had a nice conversation with George. And you say, you know, was it comfortable? And they might look down to the right and they'll say, uh, yeah, it was kind of cold. 
And what they found was that there were these consistent patterns that when people recalled visual memories, they would typically look up to the right. If they're left-handed, they might look up to the left. Um, if you asked them to imagine something, they'd look up to the left and reversed for left-handedness. Um, if you asked them to remember a sound or a, uh, a conversation, they would look from left to right. They would be remembering the conversation. If you asked them about feelings, they'll look down, um, typically down into their right. And if you ask, and 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 if if you ask them to tell you something, they will internally rehearse it. They'll practice the words in their mind while they're looking down into the left. And these were fairly consistent. And they started experimenting with these things where they'd say, okay, well, pull up a picture of, you know, that time last week when you had a fight with, with uh, your partner and it was, and it's still an unpleasant memory. And they, they would look up like, you know, look up to the right uh, off, maybe 15 feet off in the distance. And, and uh, Richard would say, now, see that picture right there? And they would look, yeah, I see that picture right there. And he'd say, okay, move that over to the left side of the room. And the person would move the picture, and he would say, how do you feel now? And they'd say, well, I feel different. And uh, he'd say, okay, is it color or black and white? And they say, it's color. He'd say, turn it into black and white. How does it feel now? Well, now it feels even more different. You know? And there was all these things that you could do with these pictures or sounds or feelings to actually change their meaning. And what they discovered was that the way the brain sorts and stores information is actually physical. There's a physical structure. It's not inside the brain. It is, it's like this field, uh, and I don't mean in a metaphysical sense. I mean, because we actually, you know, if I ask you, uh, what did you have for lunch yesterday? What did you have? There you go. See, you're looking up. There you go. And you're, you're trying to access the picture of it. And um, so, you know, we all have these things stored in different places, and sometimes they're a foot away, and sometimes they're 15 feet away. And in the process of learning about this, one of the things that they discovered was that when you take a, a memory, particularly an unpleasant memory or a heavily charged memory, and you cross the, the midline so that it shifts from the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere, it will make a dramatic change in meaning um, because the right and left hemispheres process different kinds of data in different ways. You know, we have Broca's region in the left side that processes language. We have Wernicke's region on the right side that, that processes music and sound, things like that. So we can simply move these things around. And um, they discovered that if you took, a, took an image, took you know, an experience, and you moved your eyes from side to side, left to right, left to right, while you're you know, moving that image around in space, while you're talking about it, you actually can resolve it. And in fact, they discovered that you could, you could resolve trauma this way. So uh, Francine Shapiro, who uh, apparently was, I, I'm not sure how she learned about this. Um, uh, she says she discovered it by walking to work. Um, and as she was walking along the park and she was trying to process a, a particularly troubling thought, she was looking from left to right and left to right. And she discovered that suddenly she didn't feel traumatic anymore. But it was around the same time that Richard and John were starting to teach this stuff. So maybe it was in the air. Maybe she heard it someplace else. Who knows? But Francine Shapiro turned this into a real science, and she called it eye motion desensitization reintegration, EMDR. And, um, and she would you know, do it with two fingers in front of the eyes while having the person discuss their trauma. And this is so effective now that the military uses this to treat PTSD. 
you know, we're back to Mesmer and, and, and Freud, really. And it's just, it's extraordinary stuff. So, so then the question for me was going back to my original question, which is how do Og and Zog deal with trauma? One of the more common bilateral things that we are literally physically built to do is walking. And so at the time I was writing about uh, uh, attention deficit disorder and I was speaking at a lot of psychological conferences and I'd published a couple of books in that area and I'd gotten rostered as a, as a psychotherapist in, in the state of Vermont. And I was in touch with a lot of these people that I met at these conferences who were clinicians, who were practitioners. And I had a small practice as a coach, coaching psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists in how to work with their patients using neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, which was that technology that Bandler and Grindler uh, developed. So I started kind of cutting deals with some of my coaching clients saying, you know, I'll provide you with, you know, free coaching for a couple of weeks if you will try this one simple thing with your clients, your patients, your trauma patients. Have them go for a walk. Have them walk at least a mile have them carry nothing in their hands so their arms are swinging, and while they're walking, have them hold in front of themselves the image or the feeling or the sounds of their traumatic event and report back to me if, A, if there's any change, B, what that change is like, and C, how long it takes for that change to take place. And, and person after person after person was coming back to me saying, this is amazing. I'm getting incredible results from this. And there are therapists now who, you know, old friends of mine who are, have integrated this into their practice where they're, they're saying, you know, just go for a walk and do this. It's very simple stuff. I mean, this, you know, and, and it's, and of course it's what Og and Zog were doing, you know, walking back from the, from the woolly mammoth hunt. And so, uh, I thought, this is just so cool. This is so simple. This is so straightforward. You don't need to shrink. There's no way to screw it up. You can't do it wrong. If you, if you try to do it wrong, if the picture's too intense or if the, you know, whatever, then, then your, your brain will just reject it. You know, we have, the, the brain has really good defense mechanisms. That's why it won't let PTSD stuff out of the hippocampus. And so the, my working theory of this is that what happens is that as you know, when you bring up that trauma, you're accessing the hippocampus, the, the, which still thinks that that event happened today. You're bringing that up, and but because you're bilaterally engaging left, right, left, right, left, right, as you're as you're walking, you're engaging both sides of the brain. You are uh, you have that whole brain access to it, rather than just a story about it that might be in Broca's region, or rather than just a visual image of it that might be in some part of the occipital you know, the, the, the back part of the brain that has vision, you know, the visual, the, uh, the visual cortex. And that, that allows for a whole brain integration. It brings all the resources of the, of the mind to bear on that trauma. So it's just the coolest thing. And uh, so I wrote this little book. It's not, I don't think it's even more than 100 pages. And it's a book you can read in a, in a, in a day or two. And I've got therapists all over the country who give these books away to their patients. And it's, it's got a minor cult following. You can, you, can, you can read the reviews on Amazon, you know, people saying, this saved my life and that kind of stuff. It's just so cool. So one of the things that came to mind for me was for the people who have these really traumatic moments, right? And there's this, you know, like, think about it while you 
do this kind of bilateral kind of activity, whether it's the fingers going back and forth or walking or mm -hmm. what. What if people just can't imagine going there because they feel like they'll die if they go back to that to that memory? Like, what is going on there, and how do you go th get through that? That's actually, you know, with severe PTSD, that's common. And there are there are steps that you can take, and I don't really dig into that in the book because this is more therapy stuff. I mean, this this is this is the the deep work. But um, one one technique that uh, NLP teaches is uh, you imagine yourself sitting in a movie theater with a screen in front, and then you float out of your own body and go up to the balcony, and you look down at yourself watching the screen as yourself watching the screen watches the event while you're safely up in the balcony watching yourself watch the screen. And it's called a double dissociation. And what it does is it gives you enough space from the event that you can access the event. Um, that's, I mean, that's one of a half a dozen different ways that you can kind of come around the side to get into, into these kinds of things. Um, I'll tell you a story uh, that, that uh, I was uh, teaching uh, Walking Your Blues Away, but also this bilaterality and mesmerism, essentially, um, with uh, Steve Larson. He's a professor of psychology at, at, at SUNY, uh, State University of New York in, in uh, Stony Brook. And uh, he runs a center called the Stone Mountain Counseling Center and, and the Center for Mythical Studies. He was Joseph Campbell's protege. He wrote Joseph Campbell's biography, Fire in the Mind. And we had a group of, um, I don't know, uh, 15 people or so who were, um, you know, very interested. And Stephen had invited a couple of his patients, and there were uh, probably about half the people there were therapists. And so I got up and I gave a talk, and I explained pretty much everything I just explained to you. And then Stephen said, you know, does anybody want to be a guinea pig? Does anybody want to come up on stage? And well, I was in the front of the room, you know, it was, and, and uh, have Tom try this on you. And this one guy, his name was Bill, and he said, uh, yeah, I'd like to. You know, I, I, I would really like to. And so uh, he came up and he sat in a chair facing me. And uh, we had just a little bit of small talk, you know. He was, uh, he was my age. Um, and, uh, and I said, so Bill, when you, when you think about that memory that is troubling you, um, and I got that far into the sentence, and he started crying. And so we waited for a few minutes for him to kind of recover from that. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, yeah, I can, I, can, I can remember it. And I said, you remember it as if it happened today? And he said, yes, every morning I wake up, and it's the first thing I think of, and it's with me all day. And I have been disabled now for almost 20 years. I can't work. I can't maintain a relationship. I can't do anything um, because this is just haunting me. And I said, uh, well, you know, I don't need to know what the event is. This is the wonderful thing about this kind of therapy is it's non-intrusive. I don't need to know your secrets. So don't even tell me. We're just going to work with the process. So um, just to start out, um, can you bring up maybe some little edge of it? And he was like, yeah, I can kind of get to an edge of it. And his eyes started tearing up. And so I'm moving my hand back and forth in front of his face. I said, just follow my eyes while you're doing this. 
And we did this for three or four minutes, and he kind of cleared up a little bit. And then we paused for five minutes and let him kind of recover. And we did that three or four times uh, until he, until it was kind of grayed out, desensitized to the point where he felt like he could just kind of grab it head on. And, um, and then we did, and it took, geez, maybe 15 minutes. I mean, it was a fairly long process of his doing that. And I didn't, wasn't just going back and forth. I'd go from upper right diagonal to lower left diagonal, upper right, left, you know, I was just trying to smear it all over the inside of his brain. So every resource he has, he could bring to solving this and get it completely out of the hippocampus and into his functioning conscious brain. And it worked. I mean, it, it was like, you know, after, after a couple of these sessions, the whole process took, took us maybe 35 or 40 minutes. And suddenly, we're, you know, I'm, I'm going back and forth with him. He stopped crying and everything. And suddenly he starts laughing. And he's like, he's just sitting there going, I can't believe it. I can't effing believe it. And, and, and I'm, I'm like, what? And he said, I can't believe that I've been tortured by that all these years. And it really wasn't my fault. And, you know, it's like, it, I, I did what I thought was the right thing. I, I, and and I've been I've been beating myself up and I've been torturing myself. I can't believe I did that. And and um, you know he was uh, he was actually one of Steve's patients. And so Steve comes up and says, "Well, Bill, you want to talk about it? You know, to the group, you know, or not? I mean, you're welcome not to talk about it, but you know, if you want." And Bill said, "I'm happy to talk about it." He said, "Back in in 1970 something or other, I was in Vietnam." And my job, uh, we'd had this big firefight on the side of a mountain, and we had a, a, a bunch of dead people, and we had a half a dozen wounded guys. And my job was to be the, I had a walkie-talkie, I had a radio, handheld radio, and my job was to bring in the helicopter and get the helicopter out, the medevac. And he said, and uh, we thought we had cleared the area. It had been a brutal firefight. And we thought that there were no Viet Cong left in the area. And so I called the helicopter in, and the helicopter came in safely, and we loaded it up with, with people, the medics and, and the, you know, a couple of the troops who were not wounded, but we got all the wounded people on that helicopter. And, and he said, and I was supposed to take about a, you know, 15, 20 minutes and, and, and navigate around the area and make sure that just double-check that there were no VC left. And he said, but I was so concerned because of this firefight that we had just had, that there were other people coming, that reinforcements were on their way, it was loud, that um, he said, I just, I, you know, I made a judgment call, and I said to the helicopter pilot, he said, I said, you know, lift off. And he said, the guy got about 300 feet in the air, right above me, and a mortar, a rocket-propelled grenade came out of the jungle and exploded this thing, and I had body parts raining down on me. Only now when he's telling this, I'm starting to cry telling the story. But when he was telling the story, he was like, he was like normal person. And you can understand why, you know, he couldn't access that for 20 years. And uh, it, it's just, you know, an amazing thing. And, and I, I have seen that. I used to speak at psychology conferences all the time. I, back, when, back in the 90s when I was writing on attention deficit disorder and on, and on uh, trauma. And I have done this demonstration in front of rooms full of people, yeah, almost always in front of rooms full of therapists who have their own crises. 
And, you know, I'll say, you know, is there somebody in the audience who's got, uh, you know, some, something that they want to deal with, and I don't need to know what it is. You don't have to tell me what it is. In fact, it's better if you don't. And let's just do it. And they'll come up on stage, and we'll do it, and we go through the process. And sometimes they'll later tell me one, one was a, a woman who uh, she and her boyfriend were in Indonesia. He was a reporter. And uh, it was during the Indonesian Revolution. And uh, a soldier walked up, put the gun to her boyfriend's head, and shot him, killed him dead right in front of her. And, um, you know, which she told us about afterwards. So uh, I'm here to tell you this works. This stuff really works. And, and, of course, you know, the U.S. Army will tell you that, too. That's why they're doing it with soldiers right now. And, and this all happens in f- about 15 minutes' time? Well, it depends. It can, you, can, you, can get, um, you can get to the point where it's no longer clinically PTSD within less than an hour, easily and consistently, in my experience. Um, the people, people still have that memory. The memory doesn't go away. What happens is it's no longer stuck in the hippocampus. It's now in the brain. It's now, now that has to be dealt with. And so there's a whole second level, a second order of therapy that, that's appropriate. You know, how, okay, now, now that you can process this, how, you know, how do we think about it? What stories do we tell ourselves about it? How do we fit it into our lives? How does it change our, our sense of identity? Um, all those kinds of things. So it's not, you know, I don't mean to be glib, um, but, but that process of busting it out of the hippocampus that does not take very long. Another thing that comes to mind is it's about walking, being intentional, you mm-hmm. know, in your walk about working through this. And that's free. Like you're not paying anyone to that's do right. this. And one thing that comes to mind is like given that EMDR is used quite frequently and for, to to good results, there's still someone being paid for it and so forth is Someone might ask, you know, how come more people don't know about this? <laughs> what do you say to that? Well, they haven't read my book. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it, psychology is a business. Uh, psychotherapy is a business. Um, but I think most therapists really want everybody to be better. And, you know, I certainly know that the people that I've taught this to, and I've probably taught it to, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1,000 therapists over the five or six years that I was working in this field. And before that, I, you know, I ran a community for abused kids for five years, and, and we used these techniques. And you know, a lot of them are telling people how to do this, how to, you know, like I said, you know, the, the book has got a little cult following, and, and it's mostly in that field. You know? And I would add, mm-hmm. uh, Yuko, that, that I think the, the other main reason why there's not a broader acceptance or adoption of it is that there's still a stigma associated with hypnotism. And hypnosis, and and this is really a subset of hypnosis, and that stigma I think still goes back to Trilby and and Svengali and and you know and the stage hypnotists. People just don't tr- quite trust it, you know, and the whole idea of somebody can take control of your mind and all that, uh, you know, is is intimidating for some people. So, you know, that's why walking is so so cool. I mean, you can just take a walk and think about the trauma to the extent that you can. Hold it to the extent that you can while you're walking and literally watch it dissolve. What is it that your brain will just decide to latch on to certain things and keep things in your head 
whether you like them or not. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mean, it can be pleasant things or or unpleasant things. Your brain just kind of has a mind of its own in terms of what it's going to attach to and keep mm-hmm. in your mind. And then the things that you want to remember, you know, you can't. Right. <laughs> so, like, how does the brain do that? I can give you an example if you're willing to be a guinea pig um, for something very minor. Um, and you can open your own mic there. And, okay. Um, can, I'd like you to think of something that, that was a, a, a minor unpleasant experience. I'm thinking of like yesterday when um, a friend of mine and I went to lunch, the, the woman who, you know, we, where we wanted a seat, she didn't want us to sit, and she got really snotty with us. And I, you know, I was just taken aback by it. And so you know, I'd, I didn't take it personally, but that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and flips you the bird. Something that you're, that you're thinking of that's from the last couple of days that you know, maybe you're still a little pissed off about or upset about. Can you, can you think of okay. something like that? Yeah. You got one? Uh-huh. Okay, great. And, and where is it? Uh, you were just right looking right up uh-huh. there. So you, yep. ahead and above you and a few feet out. Yeah. Is it a color picture or black and white? Color. Is it a movie or is it a still picture? It it's it can be both. Um, movie, we'll okay. say. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there sound? No. Okay. All right. And are you in the picture or do you see it as if you were watching it? I'm watching it. Okay, great. So what I'd like you to do first is take that picture and uh, you said it's a movie. So uh, let's start. Uh, there's people in the, in the picture, right? Yeah, and okay. actually now sound is coming in. <laughs> okay, there you go. So you're accessing the full memory. So uh, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to draw bunny ears on the people. Okay. And um, and streak some rainbows across the across the image. Uh-huh. And now uh, we're gonna play it all the way to the end, and then I want you to re rewind it. And as it, as it's going backwards, everybody's gonna be talking like Donald Duck, you know, quack 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 quack. Play it backwards, real fast. There you go. And right now you're smiling. (laughs) So um, I'm wondering, I should have asked you at the beginning how to describe this. People will say irritation or anger or upset or something. What, what, has it it changed for you? Has your sense of that experience changed? Yeah, because it's become comical now that there's rainbows over it and bunny ears and, yeah, so you can... But it's you still remember person. exactly yes. what happened. Mm-hmm. But your emotional charge, the emotional charge associated with it has changed. Ah. So, and now you can take that picture and turn it black and white mm-hmm. and paint it on some glass mm-hmm. and push it out 100 feet into space hmm. and then throw a little stone and shatter it. Wow. It actually really, like... You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> like I just saw it shatter, right? Yeah, yeah. there you go. Huh. And, and see, this, what you're accessing is the storage system of your mind. And the mind has this literally a physical storage system. If you ask somebody to remember a time when they were embarrassed, you know, uh, uh, for a man it would be like, you know, walking into a room and discovering that their fly was unzipped, that kind of thing, you know. Ask them to remember a time you were embarrassed, and they will look in a particular place, right, like up to the right. 17 feet off or whatever. And then you ask them to remember a time a year ago when they were embarrassed. Completely different incident. They'll look at the same place. Because we have this place, this actual physical place in, our, in this field of our mind where we keep embarrassment. There's another place where we keep love. There's another place where we keep strength. There's another place where we keep 
enthusiasm. And, and by taking any particular memory, and I call it smearing, smearing it around so it's all over in different places, altering it, and see, you, you, if your mind objected to putting bunny ears on those people, it wouldn't have done it. You know, this is, this is something that you're really ultimately totally in control of. And by moving it around, you're giving that particular experience access to the resources of a stronger yuko or a more brave yuko or maybe it's a maybe it's a memory from childhood that now the adult yuko can help heal and fix it's it's just a, a wonderful wonderful therapeutic technology it's kind of like radio actually you know cuz you're already you know creating images of whomever you're listening to even though you don't know what they look like mm -hmm. you your brain already just does that right yeah and then you know here we are like throwing this rock at and shattering this image and putting bunny ears on this thing um it is it is a much about the connecting with the imagination well and, and the simplest way to do it and and um it's a little harder in a studio here because we you know the the most distant wall is three feet from you <laughs> Um, so you have to imagine pushing something beyond that. But the easiest, this is just a starting point, and and uh, do this with a friend of yours sometime. You know, if you ever, you know, if you want to explain how this works, is you know, ask them where the picture is. Oh, it's it's you know, off to the left, 15 feet out. And just say, well, just move it over to the right, and then move it back to the left, and move it over to the right. And now move it down to the floor. Move it over to the left side of the floor. Move it over to the right side of the floor. Move it right up to the middle, and at each one of those places, say. What's the emotion you'd describe there? And you will actually, people will actually say, okay, it started out as I'm irritated, and then it moved to I'm curious, and then it moved to I'm thoughtful. I mean, it just, things, you know, the actual emotion associated. I am convinced that the way that we sort and store information is not by language and not by logic, but by emotion. That emotion, and because emotion is our most primitive system uh, in our mind, it's the system. You know, emotion tells us in a very real way. You know, if 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 the tiger is chasing us through the jungle, we have the emotion of fear. If we are chasing the, the rabbit that's going to be lunch for you know, we have the emotion of excitement. I mean, there are emotions that that are absolutely essential to our survival. That's how we, that's why we still are a, a functioning species. So there has to be an organizing system around emotion. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that um, all these things that we have words for, our brain doesn't actually use words for. You know, we access the emotion and then we translate that into a word. Just like, you know, if I look at that monitor, my brain is seeing, you know, green and black and, and little blue light and, and I translate it into, oh, that's a monitor. Um, so we can intellectually recognize the emotion and describe the emotion, but the part of our brain or of our mind that is, is truly working and truly processing and truly storing is doing it based on emotion. Mm. This kind of reminds me of, um, what, what is it called, um, like somatic, somatic healing or what? Um, that's, that's a subset of, of mesmerism. I mean, one of the other things that Mesmer did was he would bilaterally stroke people, you know, stroke down their left arm and then their right arm, left arm, right arm. Freud did this. He describes it in studies on hysteria. He did it with Anna O, oh, who was the famous patient that they worked with. Um, you know, uh, although it, that's the sort of thing that can get... Uh, easily abused when a male therapist is stroking a female patient. 
Um, but there are now entire schools of therapy around this, and there are people who do, you know, tapping on the left side, tapping on the right side, tapping on the left side, tapping on the right side, on your shoulders or on your solar plexus or your stomach or whatever it may be, as you are thinking of things that are troubling. Or, but the key is that it's always bilateral. It always has to go to, you know, left of the midline, right of the midline, left of the midline, right of the midline. Whatever they say about walking being so healthy for so many reasons, well, this, this is just adds to it. There you go. Yeah, we process yeah. our, our yeah. day. And it, and it typically takes 20 to 30 minutes for a, you know, using this technique for a walk to be really effective. It's a little slower than having somebody do it with fingers in front of your eyes. Um, so, you know, average person walks three miles an hour. That's, you know, about a mile, mile and a half, two miles. Uh, and if you do that every day for a week with a particular issue, you will be astonished. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tom Hartman. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, being in the studio and talking about your book, Walking Your Blues Away. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Yuko. Yeah. KBCS Community Radio. I'm Yuko Kadama. That was my interview with radio host Tom Hartman. The Tom Hartman program broadcasts on KBCS weekdays from 9 to noon. If you liked what you just listened to, you can go to kbcs.fm for more interviews and stories.